Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Halima Marcus is the author of Horse Girls, Recovering, Aspiring, and Devoted Riders Redefine the Iconic Bond. Halima's short stories and essays have appeared in One Story, Bomb, The Literary Review, Amazon Original Stories, The Out There Podcast, Indiana Review, Gulf Coast, The Southampton Review, and elsewhere. She is the executive director of Electric Literature, an innovative digital publisher based in Brooklyn, and the editor-in-chief of its weekly fiction magazine, Recommended Reading, which she co-founded. She has an MFA from Brooklyn College and lives in the Catskill region of New York. Welcome, Halima. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss horse girls, recovering, aspiring, and devoted riders, redefine the iconic bond. Thank you for having me. As a fellow anthology editor, I like have a, you know, predilection is that even the right word for other anthologies and I love reading essays by and that bring together and books that bring together such interesting voices I love Courtney mom by the way I've had her on my podcast several times and anyway the essays were fantastic so why don't you tell everybody a little bit more about horse girls and why you were the person to put this collection together well I had written as a kid and as a teenager and it was something that was so important to me during that time and I loved it and devoted myself to it kind of at the expense of all else. But I always had this little embarrassment or compartmentalization that was going on where I had my writing life and then I had my other life at school. And when it came time to go to college, I put it aside and thought I would pursue my grand life as a writer and an artist and felt that there was no possible overlap between that riding life and the intellectual life that I was hoping to pursue. And after college, I moved to New York City, started a career as an editor, but always had this kind of niggling feeling about wanting to be around horses. And I couldn't believe that it had followed me and that it was so deep inside. You know, I'd be jogging around Prospect Park and watch the horses go by and just kind of have fantasies that I would need, like a rider would fall off and someone would say, does anyone know how to ride a horse? (laughs) Jump in. 
But when I would mention it to you're, me, you're to having my... fantasies about people being completely <laughs> hurt right in front of you. Okay, I, I well maybe understand. they're not injured, but you know, oh, okay, my just expertise is, of writing. Yeah, my expertise would be called upon in some way, but it just still didn't fit with anything I was doing. And I ended up writing an essay for Amazon Original Stories about my teenage years and how writing was so important in terms of coping with disordered eating as a teenager. And my, you know, I had a strict religious upbringing. And as I wrote that essay, I just saw that how every bit, when I got into writing, I just pulled these threads and they just led in so many different directions in terms of self-esteem and identity and girlhood and womanhood. And writing that essay really took it out of me. I was like, I actually hate writing personal essays, I realized. Really? Okay. Well, we'll, we'll revisit that, but it was okay. an intense experience. But I realized that there was so much to say on the topic and then I needed to assemble a group of writers to do that. I had said my piece, I was one limited perspective, but I really wanted to get this 360 view of this horse girl stereotype and ask questions like, is there anything here? You know, is there a connection between women and horses or girls and horses? Or, or is it, you know, more about external factors? And what value does the stereotype have? How is it harmful? How can we kind of expand who might be included in the idea of a rider? So that's where I that's where I started. Interesting. And you point out early on the difference between a horse girl and a horse woman. So tell me, tell, tell listeners about that. So a horse girl, I think is a little bit derogatory. It's dismissive. They are maybe spoiled or, you know, pigtailed brat, or they're kind of clueless about social mores and they're wearing, you know, pony clothing or horse clothing and, you know, not relating to their peers because they're just so obsessed with horses. So that's kind of some of the horse girl stereotypes. As you get a little older, you might see some sexualization that goes along with that stereotype in terms of a, a dominatrix with a crop and high boots. But then a horse woman is like kind of the equivalent of a cowboy in a lot of ways, like really roughshod, tough, riding through injury, no nonsense, tough love, all that. And someone who really has devoted their, their life to it rather than someone who perhaps is a hobbyist or an after-school kind of writer. <laughs> well, when you tried to sort of put down the writing crop, if you will, and you know, especially in college when you announce yourself as someone who used to be a writer and you know, some girl who you did not want to be associated with was like, oh, me too. And you were like, no, no, no. <laughs> right, exactly. What were you, like, what did you, what filled that void for you until you started fantasizing about people falling off their horses? <laughs> well, college was very exciting. I was one of those people who got to college and was like, oh my gosh, here's what I've been looking for in terms of friends to relate to, feeling like a little bit of an outsider in high school and being interested in things that few other people were interested in. And then getting to college and suddenly seeing not only is every so many people interested in the books and music and movies that I'm interested in, but they can teach me more. So I think it took me a little while to miss it because I had been so regimented as a teenager and given up other experiences in order to be able to be competitive in the sport. 
So it was just like a buffet of experience when I got to college. And then even after that, I moved back to Philly. I rode a little bit there. So it wasn't really until I got to New York City and had lived there for a few few years that I really started to miss it. But, you know, in New York City, it's it's a whole other buffet in terms of working really hard, meeting people, going out, getting involved in the literary world, which was just so exciting to me. Getting to be in rooms with writers who I had admired was like, you know, blew my mind. So there was a lot to take part in. <laughs> I agree. I still feel that way when I'm around. <laughs> my mind is perpetually blown. It's amazing uh, to be have your books come to life, essentially. Talk about how you got into the literary world after. I mean, so many people go to college hoping and wishing, and yet here you are, you know, ahead of electric literature and all this stuff. So how did that all happen? When I was in undergraduate, I had a professor who said to me, are you going to get an MFA? And I was like, I don't even know what that means. I've never heard those letters in that order. What are you talking about? Didn't entertain the idea until a few years after. And then I went to get an MFA at Brooklyn College. And the founders of Electric Literature had also gone to Brooklyn College. So I thought I'd like to, you know, I had had other jobs in nonprofits. And this was even a different time when the whole internship hamster wheel didn't exist in the same way. So I don't think I'd even really ever had an internship. I'd had some other full-time jobs, but I thought this would be a great way to learn about literary magazine publishing. Joined as an intern and then was soon hired as a managing editor. We were At the beginning, we were sort of all volunteers. So hired is in air quotes. (laughs) And over time, the leadership changed. They wanted to work on another project. So I stepped up and eventually moved into the role of executive director and fiction editor. And so I've been there now 11 years and it's been, you know, my one job in literary publishing. But the reason that I can stay engaged is that if I get bored well, it's always hard, so I'm really bored. But if I do get bored, I can change it, you know, change it up, stay challenged. So what, have you discovered authors? Like, at what point do you get, do you get all the galley? Like, at what point are you reading and choosing from, is it from published? Is it pre-publication? Is it like how, that was We do question. a mix of excerpts and original. So I, I edit the fiction series, which is a weekly series. And we review submissions. So this past year we got over 5,000 submissions and we have volunteer readers. We select from there, but we're actually quite good about publishing from open submissions. 50% of our original fiction slots went to unsolicited, unagented submissions, which is quite a high percentage for a literary magazine. And then we also are reading forthcoming titles to excerpt. And we focus on short story collections, although we do also novel excerpts as well. But my passion is really when I get to work with a writer and edit a story and kind of get into that mind meld. That's the thing that I live for. So doing that for the anthology was very exciting. And I got to call up writers that I had perhaps edited their fiction before mm-hmm. and talk to them about writing an essay instead. My co-founder of Zibby Books, by the way, Lee Newman has a beautiful short story collection coming out in April. I know all about it. it. You do? Okay. Okay. Yeah. We published one of her stories. Libby and I are actually in a right. Uh, sorry. I've combined. I have a friend named Libby. Lee and I 
I combined your names. That's Lee and I are in a writing group together. And so we're actually know each other well. And I have it here somewhere, her book. So yeah. I'm so excited about it. We published the story about the, it's the historical one set on the Alaskan frontier. Awesome. Which okay. is called well, The Great, I forget what it's called. Well, that's interesting when you said you went out and talked to fiction writers about writing essays, because when I did that for my two anthologies, I was really surprised at how many fiction writers did not want to write essays. Like, I love writing essays, so I thought that would be an easy ask. In truth, no. Did you find the same or not? Well, most of the writers in the anthology do both. Yeah. So, you know, just look, T. Kira Madden had published a memoir. Carmen Maria Machado just published a memoir. Maggie Shipstead, who I'd worked with on fiction, right, does travel writing. So they were able to, to switch gears. Rosebud Ben Oni is primarily a poet. And I think that really shows in her prose. So I, so, you know, there are people that I asked that didn't want to do it, of course, but from this group, they were able to switch back and forth. Did you find any sort of personality trait that predisposed people to be in relationships with horses, if you will? Like, is there something that draws a person to it? Like, could you, could you identify it ahead of time? You know what I mean? That's such an interesting question. And I sort of asked that question with the project of the book, but from a different angle. Like I asked it more about, you know, what are horses fulfilling in people rather than you know, what is the the type? I think that there's a couple different types and I'm hesitant to accidentally construct a stereotype, but I think you see a certain kind of like whimsical attitude. You know, Carmen Machado talks about that where she says that her, you know, alter ego as a kid was like fire dolphin or something like that. So I think you see that there's a, there's a fantasy element. I think there is a kind of daredevil bravery element, but on the flip side of that, you also see fearful people being drawn to it as a kind of antidote or like homeopathic type of remedy for some, you know, I think you do see a lot of girls who are very timid otherwise being drawn to horses because it's a way to completely get outside of that cage. And I think that's probably the camp that I fell into more. I was shy and nervous and quiet under many circumstances, but under the right circumstances could be very outgoing and could gallop a horse across a field without thinking twice about it. I was like that too. I was a little shy and I did ride for a while when I was a kid as well, but I was never like a riding. I didn't like do any competing or anything, but, uh, did you, did you click with it? Um, I liked it, but I never like loved it, but I did love, they had this one, you know, probably one of those beat up horses you were talking about that, that, that people ride for lessons named Spots. So Spots was like in summer camp, my you know, the assigned horse or whatever. And I was very attached until I was cleaning its hooves, his hooves, his, I think, hooves one day. And like, next thing you know, he like kicked me in the thigh and oh, I went like, no. like out of a movie, like went like flying out the stall you know, like <laughs> on, my, on my butt, like a couple of feet outside. And I had this huge hoof print on my thigh, like the rest of the summer. Oh my gosh. There's a, there's the essay with one of the writers showing off the hoof print on her hand as yeah. a badge of honor. Yeah. It didn't feel like a badge of honor. It felt bad. 
<laughs> but yeah, and then I became very allergic to horses. So that seemed like a, a good time. Plus, I feel like my anxiety was just like manifesting itself, the fear component of like falling or something happening and all of that with the allergies. I was like, all right, I'm going to go back to tennis <laughs> and yeah. stay on land. Yeah. yeah. But my sister-in-law is a competitive horseback rider and amazing. You know, she's, I don't know. I watch the way she talks about horses and she recently gave my daughter like all her play horses from when she was a little oh, girl. It was the horses. thing. Yes. Oh my gosh. So now my daughter plays them. Anyway. But with some people, it does click to that next element or even goes from a like to a love to an obsession. Yeah. And you know, and with some people, it's that there's a lot of women in this book negotiating their attitudes towards competition and mm-hmm. um, figuring out how to enjoy it without being competitive and how to take value from something in adulthood is as an amateur where, you know, they were maybe striving to be the best as a teenager. But, you know, I think that competition does have its upsides too, you know, that, that competitive spirit. So that's another kind of common personality trait that you might see, you know, the person that takes a riding lesson and thinks like, I want to get good at this. Like, mm-hmm. I want the fences to go higher. I want to do all the things that I see that person doing. But I do think that the fear factor is in constant negotiation. You know, Maggie Shipstead writes about like, even as the jumps were going higher, she's always felt afraid, but she still wanted the jumps to go higher. And I asked her in edits, like, why do you think that was? And it was even difficult to articulate, but, you know, fear is just kind of a part of it. You know, that feeling in your stomach that you just have to push past and you have to control your body in a way because it's true that the horses notice every every little thing your body does. Yeah. It's like a kid. You can like pretend you're not in a bad mood, but they <laughs> right they see right through the face. Exactly. Yeah. Can uh, you can't hide it. Can we go back to what you said quickly about your disordered eating earlier in life? Can you talk about that a little and what that sure. was all about? Okay, we can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe, but we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life 360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use, so I got it, and now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you, and it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose a 100 times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus or when my husband gets to LA or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and it makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life 360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life 360. Visit life360.com 
or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. Yeah, I mean, so that's why writing that that essay that I mentioned was such a, which leveled me because I was kind of revisiting that time. And I had an idea for the essay that was very neat and tidy, and then it got messier, but it was a rewarding thing, piece to write. And I think, you know, hopefully to other people, but, you know, I, I, as I also mentioned, I had quite strict parents and I think it kind of began in some ways as a form of rebellion, you know, being so controlled and then not to be crass about it, but then kind of being like, well, watch, watch what I can control. Mm-hmm. And I was writing at the time as well. And basically what got me out of it was that my instructor said to me, you can be thin or you can ride. And it was all whatever else anyone had said to me, which was not much, actually. I think people were very avoidant of engaging me in, in the issue. And I wasn't getting, like I had gone to my pediatrician about it. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't gotten actual proper talk therapy help or anything like that. So people were very avoidant of the issue, kind of not wanting to mention it. And I was having problems with my horse running away with me because I didn't have the strength. And you talk about horses, know everything about your body. They're like, that she's insignificant up there. I can do whatever I want. And she just said that in front of other people. And I think there's many different ways to read it. It's that tough love that I'm talking about. I mean, that was not kid gloves. That's like laying out here. It's what it is. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to be a person that chooses being thin over riding. Like that, is that a choice I'm going to make? Someone's laying it out to me like a choice. And it's not to say that it was immediately over, but that was a major turning point. Wow. That was when I was about 16 or something. It's hard to know what to do when you see people struggling to know how much you should intervene. You know, you said people were avoidant. I feel like, you know, with most complicated things like loss and I don't know, a lot of times people just don't know what to do or what to say. Do you wish more people had said something to you? Well, there's, there's the people that make comments. Mm-hmm. Lots of people make comments and that's different, yes. you know, where people say, oh, I don't recognize you or, oh, you're wasting away. And you might take that even as, you might take it as a compliment or you might take it, even if it's negative attention. I mean, there's some way in which any attention about your body is negative attention, even if it's a compliment. But, you know, in that situation, in in my own experience, I might've liked that or got fed off, not liked it, but fed off it in some Mm -hmm. perverse way. But I think that I, you know, I wish that the people, my parents had been more equipped to actually have conversations about it. Because I think, you know, you really model, if if someone in your life like that is uncomfortable, we're talking about kind of intuitive reading of people, you, you internalize that. So, I mean, it's hard. It's a hard subject. Like, I'm not sure... I would be great at talking to someone about it. And I know I've made comments about if someone has lost a shocking amount of weight, I know I've sort of inadvertently blurted something out before. So it's not to say that it's easier. There's any kind of like simple 
way to deal with it. Yeah. I don't know. Recently, I don't know. I probably handled this wrong, but somebody I I know, not even that well. I I was like, well, actually, now I feel like I shouldn't even admit this. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) I handled it so badly. I don't know. Anyway, I was literally like, you know, are you okay? Like, are you, are you eating? Do you want to talk about it? You know, anyway, and then I left it. And that might, and it might've been, that might've been the right thing to do because, you know, just who knows? I mean, I guess there's probably professionals out there who, yeah. Um, anyway, who sorry, could I, don't, I don't mean to, I don't mean to put you on like in, in any sort of a, no, cause I, you know, I don't, I'm just, I mean, I'm really, I was, just, I was a teenager just, and, but it comes up in others, in several other essays in, in the book, you know, yeah, C. Morgan Batts writes about it, Allie Robottom. And it is, I mean, I kept encountering all these paradoxes between you know, why would you want to be so thin and weak when you when your job is to deal with this extremely powerful, strong animal? But yet there's these feminizing pressures, you know, in terms of like wearing the outfits and looking prim and put together and slim. And so at the same time that you're kind of doing these incredible athletic feats, you're supposed to, you know, put your makeup on, put do your hair. And that's something that in several, it was a pattern that I saw across several of the stories here. So what is coming next for you now that this is done? And by the way, I meant to ask, sorry, earlier, did you ever do an event? And maybe you have, and I didn't research properly enough, but there's another author, Sarah Maslin Neer, who wrote a book called Horse Crazy. Did you do an event or anything? Yes, we did. We went to Gallup NYC, which is this great nonprofit in Queens where they have, it's kind of, you pass it on the way to LaGuardia, their stables. You wouldn't see it from the road, but it's back and it's a proper horse stables. And they do lessons for kids with disabilities and, and neighborhood kids. So it's a, it's a great nonprofit. Sarah's on the board and mm-hmm. she put together a really nice event there with a couple other authors as well with horse books. So she's been wonderful at advising me throughout because she, you know, had all the, you know, she worked so hard to get her book out in the world and gave me some great advice about that as well. Awesome. Okay. Well, then I won't connect the two of you. All right. (laughs) Anyway, so now what's coming next? Would you want to do another collection like this or... I thought about it. I mean, you know, because you edited an anthology, it's a lot of work. The spreadsheets alone are just <laughs> with, <laughs> with, in terms of, you know, the revisions that you go through with each essay. And I, it was very important to me to be the primary point of contact with all the writers for everything. I didn't want them getting emails from all different people at the publisher. So I was, anytime there was copy edits or proofs, I was sending them out individually. I had thought, I mean, I'm also a runner, although I'm a little lapsed during COVID, but I had thought about doing a similar anthology about running and, you know, writers of all genders on, you know, there's so many writers who run and some have written about it famously, like Haruki Murakami, Malcolm Gladwell. And so I, I, you know, the thing, the question that I have to answer before I would even embark on such a project is are there enough angles? Mm. You know, like you can't have 12 essays where every, every writer is like, I go running to clear my head or, right. or whatever the thing is. You know, you have to find out what could be the stories that's, that you could tell through this theme. You know what could be cool with running is to sort of connect the tracks, like to connect the paths across states, right? Like it's a location 
Like they, mm. they're making progress. It, like Zaina Arafat, for instance, is a like someone who runs a lot, but she did it like I want to say in Massachusetts or something like that. And then there's Katie Arnold who wrote a beautiful book on running, but she's like in Santa Fe or someplace in the you know like if you could somehow make it almost like a travel, like you're running across, mm. like running across the country in yes. essays. That would be beautiful. And that's what I thought about that for this book too. I wanted the authors to live in different places. And that might be a kind of difference in perspective that people don't notice as much. But, you know, I wanted, we have Texas and Pakistan and East Coast, West Coast, you know, just kind of getting the full. Yeah. So we'll see about that running anthology and, you know, I'm trying to find time. I'm a fiction writer as well. So trying to find, not not time exactly, but headspace for it. Do you do mostly stories or do you long? Yeah, most, mostly stories. I'd love to write a novel, but I, I I don't know. I never have, never have the novel idea that I can stick with for long enough. I kind of think in short story length, it seems. Awesome. I love short stories. I mean, I like anything I can accomplish. <laughs> I feel like I <laughs> yeah. sometimes in a day, that's all I can do is, you know, get through an essay or a short story and, you know. But when I'm reading for a true, pl- I read a lot of short stories for work. I write short stories. So when I'm reading for true pleasure, a novel, it's like nothing is better to me than just like living inside a juicy novel. Has there been a particularly juicy one lately? Well, I just finished, I was late to read it. Although we should normalize reading books after the two weeks when they come yes. out. Yes. <laughs> I just finally read The Woman Upstairs by Claire Massoud. Yes. Which is was so fantastic and rich and you know the kind of novel that doesn't I, I there's so many novels these days that I think of as like everything but the kitchen sink novels where you read the description and there's just like there's a heist and three generations and across four continents and you're just like oh my god <laughs> and sometimes I like those those novels as well but it's just you know focused on a a certain time period with, you know, three, three or four primary characters, a slow burn, a slow build, and then an ending that is kind of greater than the sum of its parts that makes like it all worth it. And was really, I found it really thought provoking. Have you read St. Evo by Joanna Hirshon? No. Yeah, I think you might like that. It's very literary and it takes place with just a small cast of characters over a weekend with a surprise ending. Oh, I, I, I do. I do like a, Oh, it probably might not be a wedding, it's, but I do like a wedding. Off. It's not a wedding. It's called St. Evo. You should check it out. I have a feeling you'll like it. Okay. Okay. I'll check it out. But I was so excited to get Jane Smiley to contribute. Yeah, that was huge. I just thought of that because A Thousand Acres to me is one of like the greatest novels ever written in terms, you know, like a true, a truly traditional novel in the sense of character and story and like emotional heft and all that. Yeah. I haven't read that lately. I feel like, when did that come out? That wasn't that. Oh, in the nineties, I think. Right. Yeah. I feel like when it came came out, but I haven't. Yeah. I mean, and people might overlook it because I think it gets assigned in schools, you know, and people say something gets assigned in schools. Yeah. They're they're like, forget it. (laughs) For kids. Wow. Amazing. Oh, so I should just write down that book that you told me. Yeah. Write down the book and yeah. Thank you so much. This has been great. Yes. It was great great to meet you. (laughs) Yeah. Great to meet you. Tell Lee, I said, hello. Actually that essay I was talking about the Amazon one, I wrote it at her house. (laughs) Oh, Um, I, I, you know, I don't always, I don't talk to her about like who I'm interviewing. 
Oh no, I don't know who you know who she knows or whatever. But Joanna Hershon and what was the title? Saint Evo. Saint Evo. So when you know in in my introduction, I talk about seeing that graffiti on the rock. Yeah, that's at that's from Lee's house. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. So it was. I don't know if she still has it. It was like just this, this tiny little bungalow that she had in Peekskill that was like a little summer cottage and she let me use it to write that essay because I was having I needed like to go on lockdown to write it but so funny. I, I saw that message yeah so thank you I'm so much for having me on email her right now so. <laughs> great <laughs> all right well good luck with anything everything and so you great too. to meet you, you and, too. Uh, yeah take Stay care in touch. okay bye thanks for listening to this episode of moms don't have time to read books Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 